0: 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed we put it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, But that we would be further clothed so that what is immortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God. He who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of God, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that, Lord, you would come now by the power of the Spirit and uh, teach us all through your word. I pray that you would uh, move me out of the way and speak through me, Lord, Uh, all the things that are true and helpful that I would say those particular things, all the things that are not true or not helpful, God, keep me from saying those. I pray that all of us, including myself, um, would be the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit being here with us and teaching us. And I pray that for those that know Christ, as they hear the good news of the gospel, uh, that Lord, you would um, would move their hearts to be more affectionate to Jesus. Because as we think on uh, just how merciful and kind you've been to us, that we would we would want to worship you for it. And for those that, uh, that are watching or those that are here that maybe don't know you, Lord, that you would regenerate their hearts this morning and that they would trust in Christ for the first time. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are in 2 Corinthians, and so there's, there's a lot going on. Just as a quick recap, I'm not, I'm gonna, I said I'm not going to stop doing this, but I really am. But this might be the very last time. Just as a quick recap, 2 uh, Corinthians is not the second letter written to the Corinthians. It's actually the fourth um 1 Corinthians was the was the second letter and 2 Corinthians is the fourth we don't have letters 1 and 3 but what we do know is in verse 3 it was severe we don't know, have it but in this in this uh, in, in this book that we've read so far in Second Corinthians, Paul refers to that third letter and he calls it the severe letter. And he knows that it was a pretty—we know that it was a really strong rebuke to the Corinthian church. Uh, and he knows that he wants to go see them face to face. He knows that the strong rebuke letter three made them sad, and so he wrote Second Corinthians, which is letter four, as a way to say, "I'm about to come to you. I know letter three was a, was a tough rebuke, but I'm writing this before I even get there to." to soften the blow a little bit of that rebuke and to try to start reconciling with you so that when I come and I see you face to face, things are going to be good with with what's going on between us. And so um, as we've gotten to this point in 2 Corinthians 5... Each week, he's talked about the things that have been going on while he talked about forgiveness, that Paul comfort. Um, we talked about the reconciliation that they need to have with each other. We talked about forgiveness, that Paul is extending to the Corinthian church because of the things that they had done wrong to him. And the false teachers that had come in and that had down-talked him. And after we've seen that, Paul talks starts talking about the fact that he needs to uh, defend his apostolic ministry. So the whole of 2 Corinthians is about Paul talking about his apostolic ministry. That's chapters 1 through 7. And so we're still in those chapters where he's defending his apostolic ministry. 8 9, he talks about giving. And 10 through 13, he closes the letter with challenges. But we're in verses 1 through 7 where he's trying to help the Corinthian church see, um, I am... Uh, an apostle that 's been given to you and by, by Jesus, and since I am that person, the things that i 've said are true, those false apostles that came in, the things that they said are not true. You should not listen to me, or not listen to them, but you should listen to me and so he 's been defending his ministry, and as he talked about his ministry, he also talked about the New covenant itself and talked about the gospel and what is the greatest, uh, what is the greatest part of the good news? We saw that in, in, verse, uh, in chapter ministers of the Gospel, and he uses this illustration. Uh, or this metaphor that we're, we're jars of clay. And he talks about the great ministry that we have as jars of clay to go and tell people about Jesus. Which brings us to chapter 5. So that's, that's all that's kind of gone on as he's tried to reconcile with the Corinthians. And explain what is the great part of the new covenant. Which brings us here to chapter 5. Which in chapter 5 when you read it at first kind of read. You, you can think that the main thing that Paul's trying to get to is. He's just wanting to explain what heaven's going to be like. And explain um, which he kind of does, right? Explain why we have this glorified body one day and how here we don't have a glorified body and one day we will. And you can, this, this, this text is often referred to at funerals describing about our heavenly existence. And Paul, some people think Paul's kind of taken this excursus away from what he's been doing to just talk about what heaven's going to be like in our bodies. Um, while he does talk about heaven in our bodies, he's not taking an excursus, um, he's not just going off. Ex- as a matter of fact, he's still going in the same line of thinking, where he's wanting everybody to say, because, or he's wanting everybody to think, because that's the case, then it really affects our ministry right now. So he's been talking about how. Uh, he is an effective minister and why he's an effective minister and how he wants them to join him in being effective ministers for the gospel. And so as he talks about the glorified body and the fact that they've been suffering and that these bodies that suffer are all given to decay anyway, thank the Lord we're going to have a glorified body. He's doing that in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 so that we can concentrate on ministry now. So the point of this is so that we think about uh, ministry now. It's not talking about Uh, although it does, it's not mainly talking about what life's going to be like later. His objective to the Corinthians is to help them understand how the promised future, the promised glorified body, future in heaven, actually affects your current situation right now in ministry. How does that happen? How is it that knowing I'm going to have a glorified body affects my current ministry situation now? Well, good. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. So it, it... Ultimately, chapter 5, 1 through 10 gives us reasons that we shouldn't lose heart as we proclaim Christ while we're here. It's easy for us to, as we're proclaiming Christ, which is what the Lord has told us to do while we're here, it's easy for us to kind of lose heart because we're not seeing fruit or uh, people aren't getting saved as much as we want or, you know, uh, people hurt you, say things against you, all kinds of things, right? And you can lose heart and say, "What's, what's the point in it? Uh, and I'm suffering for the Paul here. He's suffering. People are down talking him. He's always experiencing suffering. And he's like, it's easy for me to just lose heart while I'm proclaiming Christ. And so, what he's doing here is saying, but since I will receive a glorified body, that knowledge affects me now as a minister and causes me not to give up, but always to. Um, push forward, always to keep going, and so that's what the text is that he's doing here. He's saying, in the midst of suffering, it's going to be better in heaven. Um, so, as as we saw last week uh, when Chris was preaching, that's what we're. That's the point of Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen, right here when he says, "So we don't lose heart, for we for though our outer self is wasting away, our our bodies, our physical bodies, are wasting away." Especially due to the suffering that we're receiving from people that hate Christians. They're wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And those sufferings he's going to call light momentary afflictions. These light momentary afflictions. This suffering that we're experiencing as Christians. Is actually preparing for us. Look how he describes our glorified body. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's comparing in that. What suffering bodies for Christ look like here on earth to the glorified bodies? And he's saying, suffering bodies are light momentary. And what that means is hard and tough for 70 years compared to eternity. Compared to the glorified body, which is eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So what do we do? We don't look to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen for the things that are transient. We don't look at the things that are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the whole point that that leads us into 5, 1 through 2. He's wanting the Corinthians church to know that in the midst of suffering, God's actually doing something here right now in you with that suffering. And so praise the Lord you're going to get a glorified body, but don't ever stop preaching the gospel because you know you're going to get the glorified body. Um, One commentator says this, Paul's purpose is not to answer speculative questions about the life to come and when we're going to receive our spiritual body, etc., but instead to show how the assurance of life to come change, body changes the way you live right now. It changes the way you live right now because when we get to heaven and we're going to get a new body, everything must change now then is basically the point of 5, 1 through 10. So what I call this is uh, living in the in-between time. We're living in what's the in-between time. We're, we're, we've been saved. We're going to have a glorified body, but we're in the in-between time right now. We're waiting. The in-between time is waiting for the glorified body. So living in the in-between. That's what we're going to do today. And we're going to see three exhortations from Paul, three things that he's telling us. These are three things that you can actively do right now when you're living in the in-between time as you're doing ministry. Um, and this is what ministers of the new covenant New covenant. That's who we are. Remember in chapter three, verse six, he says that we're ministers of the new covenant. I'll, I'll read chapter three, verse six. Um, he says, "Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter of the spirit?" So we are all of us ministers of the new covenant. You might not be uh, a full time employee of a church, but because you are a Christian uh, and the Great Commission has been given to us, we're all ministers of the covenant. And so we're also supposed to proclaim Christ. Remember in verse chapter 4, verse 5, for him we proclaim, uh, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. So we are ministers of the covenant that proclaim Christ. And so since that's the case, when we're living in them in between time, he's going to tell us three specific exhortations that we as ministers of the new covenant that proclaim Christ are supposed to be doing right now. That's what verses 1 through 10 is telling us. And so I want to, uh I want to, s- Stop here for just a second and just remind you of something uh, of what he's doing here. So salvation, when we talk about, hey, you know, we, we go to someone that's a Christ, not a Christian and we say, you need to get saved. Usually when we say the word saved right there, what we usually mean is theologically this word justified you need to trust in christ right now and have your sins forgiven but salvation and i've covered this if you've been here a while salvation is actually this kind of all-encompassing thing that's happening to us not just at once but happening to us so salvation when we talk about salvation is actually kind of made up of many but just to be brief and and kind of for brevity's sake four different parts right uh, so if you're talking about salvation, it's, there's regeneration. That's whenever there's nothing in you that wants Jesus whatsoever. And then, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, let light shine out of darkness. And then you, want, you don't want God at all. And all of a sudden, boom, God does something. It's called regeneration to where God has let light shine out of darkness. Ex nihilo, just like creation. And all of a sudden, you see and understand the beauty of Christ. And all, what is this? I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I want to be forgiven for my sin, and you trust Christ. And so regeneration happens, and you trust Christ. And when that happens, after regeneration, is called justification. Whenever you trust Christ, the declaration of God in the courtroom of heaven, he bangs down the gavel, and he looks at all of us who are completely guilty and says, not guilty, innocent, righteous. And that's because all of our sin was therefore put on Christ, and he counts all of our sin put on Christ. Uh, on Christ on the cross 2000 years ago and all of his righteousness is therefore imputed into us and it's all in a moment right there and that's so now what's happening is when we've been regenerated and justified we are as it says in this text we're going to see being saved if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15 the verb helps us see that in 2 Corinthians 2:15 2, It says, for we the aroma of of Christ, so he's talking about us us as ministers, and as we go out as ministers of the gospel, and we're proclaiming Christ to to each other, Paul's really precise here. He says, for we're the aroma of Christ to uh, to God among those who are being saved. So that means that once you are uh, regenerated and justified, you are still after that. Well, here's what's after that. Once you're you're regenerated and you're justified, now we're being sanctified. Which means at the moment of salvation, until we actually go to heaven, we're all in this process of becoming more and more and more like Christ. And that's what's happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, when he says, um, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. I don't have time to unpack that. If y'all remember, I got super jazzed about it when we were at 3.18, but it's, go back and listen to it if you want, but it's an incredible verse on sanctification, uh, but uh, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image. This is progressive sanctification from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so that happens until the day we die. But we're still in the process of being saved. And then the final kind of fourth stage, for lack of way to say it, of being saved or salvation is when we get into heaven and then glorification happens. That's when our, our earthly bodies are made into our glorified bodies, much like Jesus' resurrected body. And then that's salvation. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. And that's salvation. So what we're looking at here is Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-10, talking about glorification. He's talking about our bodies um, being transformed. Paul is going to discuss the context in verses 1 through 10, is living out as, right now, proclaimers of the gospel and waiting on that glorified body that happens to us whenever we are finally fully saved, if you will. Um, so here we are. Um, and what we're going to do here is uh, we're going to see the three exhortations in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. There's three ex- exhortations for living in the in- in-between time. The, uh, the first one is, you can see it. The, the verb that's given to us is in chapter, verse 2, I'm sorry, and verse 4. So read verse 2 with me and read verse 4. For in this tent we groan. For in this tent we groan. This is what we're doing, is we're groaning. You can see it also in verse 4. For while we're in, we are in this tent, we groan. It's almost exactly stated the exact same in verse 2 and verse 4. So um, that's the first thing that we are doing. As we proclaim Christ, we groan. You're like, okay, Fudd, that's super helpful. So my first exhortation from Jesus is to groan. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, so let me explain what that means. Groan here, stenazo, uh, same word used in both times. Uh, we, I want to make sure we understand this, this word groan. Because um, in English, uh, when we say groan, it can carry with it a type of despair or a type of agony or a type of mournful deje- dejection. That's how I feel. I'm groaning because I'm mournful and I'm sad. But in Greek, stenazo doesn't carry, the word groan doesn't carry that meaning. In fact, the word stenazo is hope-filled longing. Stenazo is hope-filled longing. So whenever I'm groaning, I am having a hope-filled longing. So now it's a little bit easier to understand. One of the exhortations that Paul is giving us as ministers of the gospel, waiting for the glorified body, he's telling you right now, you need to be having a continual hope-filled longing have a hope-filled lung. and So what we're being commanded here is to long for or earnestly desire the full culmination of our salvation when we finally get to heaven and we're glorified. We are to groan for our full salvation. Paul is not groaning from a hopeless kind of futility in life. Instead, he's earnestly desiring to receive the full culmination of salvation that's waiting for him. One, one commentator says it this way, we should long for heaven. So... The exhortation is, just to be clear, when I'm saying you should groan, you should long for heaven. That's what he's telling us to do. Long for heaven right now. Long for heaven. Not in a way that you just, you know, I'm not going to do anything. You can read Philippians chapter 1 where Paul talks about, uh, starting at verse 21 to the end of the chapter, about his deep desire to be in heaven, but he knows he has ministry and work right now. But, One commentator says this way, Long for heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like a hungry man longs for food, like a thirsty man longs for drink, like a soldier longs for peace. This is what we're supposed to be doing right now. As ministers of the gospel is longing. So groaning is not agony. Groaning is hope-filled. Hope-filled longing. Why is it that he wants us to groan? Well, Paul in verses 1 through 5 gives us three reasons why we groan, why we long for heaven as compared to just being totally like, I love it here, don't want to leave, right? They're probably pretty obvious on his face, but he's going to give us three reasons in verses 1 through 5. So reason A, you can go ahead and put it up. Why are we groaning? Reason A, number A, the next body is the best body. The next body is the best body. That's what he's wanting us to see. I know that you, you love your body now. It's awesome. Or maybe you hate your body and you're like, I can't wait until I get the next one. Either way, what he's wanting us to see here is the next is the best. Now, he's going to use this word tent. For we know that if the tent, Paul's a tent, tent maker, so he's familiar with this language. He's switching metaphors now from last week. Last week, we were jars of clay. This week, we're tents. Um, but he's, as he's switching it, he's going to do a comparison here between tent and building. You can. If we all just know, would you rather live in a tent or a building? If you're crazy, you'd say tent, or you're just prideful. No, I want a tent. No, you wouldn't. Compared to a building, we would all want a building, right? And he's he's comparing here tent and building. He's saying your the better the, the new your glorified body is a building. Which one do you want? the better the, the new body is the better body the the one that we the next body is the better body for we know that if the tent is our earthly home is destroyed we have a building from god that's our, our glorified body A house not made with, you can just supply the word parenthetical, human there. Not made with human hands because the Lord makes it. So it's not made with human hands. Eternal in the heavens. And so he's trying to help us see here. He's describing that we can see this comparison that tents compared to buildings, nothing. Tents pair in comparison, which means your glorified body is infinitely better than than your physical body right now. The next body is better. It's a major comfort for Paul to know this because, I mean, if you know the life of Paul, he's getting beat up all the time. He's getting destroyed. If you go to later in 2 Corinthians, you can see that. His physical body um, has and will been mercilessly beating, beaten and battered for Christ. Paul, Jesus even tells him on the road to Damascus, if you read Acts 9, after you get saved, Jesus says, and I'll show you how much you will suffer for my name in verse 20 or something like that. And so his body has suffered greatly for Christ hardships persecutions and he's deeply longing for his body to be made whole one day in heaven and so he knows that uh, his his earthly body will be destroyed but the Lord is promising him this glorified body in heaven so if you if you look at he's talked about this a little bit if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, I'm going to read verses 53 and 54 it's like four pages to the left uh, this is what he says He says in verse 53, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And so this is what he's saying. The next body is always better. Don't be so happy here. So we groan. Because this body really stinks compared to the glorified body. And that makes me press on in ministry. It makes me press on to say, I'm going to be faithful because God is going to be so good to me in giving me a glorified body. Yes, I'm going to press on right now. One commentator says this. Paul longed for his glorified body, not primarily because it would be free of physical weakness, blemishes, and defects. Just think about that, though. One day... Your glorified body will be free of physical weakness, blemishes and defects, and, f- most importantly, free from sin. free from sin. This is what Paul longs for to finally be free from sin. We are not free from sin while we're in this body. There is no perfectionism that happens here. We can progressively be sanctified, then just see Romans seven. That's what Paul's saying there. But he says, "The tent is the sins home, causing Paul to lament. I am of the flesh, sold to bondage to sin, Romans seven fourteen. Sin dwells in me, Romans seven seventeen and verse twenty. Evil is present in me, seven twenty one. This is a this is a Christian saying these things, because he still has this earthly tent around him. Wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this body of death? Romans 7, 24. The apostle longed to one day finally be able to serve, worship, and praise Jesus in absolute purity, which is, that, that is what we will do with our glorified body, freed from the restrictions of the fallen sinful flesh. That's the best feature of this resurrection reality. And so just like we have physical bodies in Adam, we're going to have glorified bodies like the second Adam. We inherited these broken, sinful bodies from first Adam, the real Adam. And we receive our glorified bodies from the second Adam, as Romans calls him, Jesus. And so the next body is the best body. That's why you groan. That's why you long for heaven. But there's another reason. B, um, why we groan. The next life is perfect. The next life is perfect. If you look at verse 2, he says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. This is Paul explaining why we groan, and he's teaching us that heaven is infinitely better than this life, because we're longing to put on. This longing helps us see that we're talking about groaning language, to put on our heavenly dwelling. Anything from heaven, obviously, is infinitely better. The next life is perfect. Can you, can you even start trying? It's incomprehensible, but Try with me to think about this. It's inconceivable. It's going to be absolutely thrilling. You and I will literally be perfect in this moment. Not to the praise of us, but to the praise of Jesus. We don't all of a sudden become little G-gods in heaven like, look at us, Jesus, we're perfect like you. Give us some praise. Sing, Sing chorus three for me. No, it's not like that, right? It's still all for Christ's glory. But the next light for us is actually perfect. Perfect. Consider that. You will not have a sinful thought ever in heaven. That just blows my mind. We can't even imagine it because we're so unbelievably sinful right now. And he says in verse 3, We long for this, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. So what does he mean there? This is what he means when he says being found naked. So there's this idea that once you die and all of a sudden your soul is out of this physical body, that you just go to heaven and then your soul doesn't have anything around it. He's saying that's not going to be, that's, that's being found naked. Being found naked is this Paul's metaphorical way to say that we're a soul without a resurrected body around us. That's not the case. Um, we're not just a f- soul floating in the clouds. We have a body around us right now, and whenever we die, we'll have a re- glorified body around us right now. We're always going to have a body around us. And in writing this, Paul, of course, if you know anything, he's fighting against this heresy that was pervading the church throughout the time greek thought was dominated by plato and platonism had or platonic thought had this idea that um, everything flesh is evil everything spiritual is good and so the body is bad and so whenever you die you finally will be shed of the body and you're just just going to be a little spirit soul floating around in the clouds and paul and paul's like that's not how god thinks platonic thought is wrong the, the first century people that believe this were called Gnostics. Gnostics just means kind of like special knowledge. And so he's fighting against this Platonic thought, saying no, actually God created bodies, and he thinks they're super important, and he's just going to glorify them. Um, and by the way, this is a this isn't just like a, a, a side kind of like, well, that seems kind of neat to know. People thought that in Greek thought. This is actually crucial. Um, it's a, actually a gospel issue to know that this is the case. Here's why. Because we know that God had to come in the form of that which he was going to save. God didn't come in the form of a cow to save humans, right? He came in the form of a human to save humans. If God, if Jesus wasn't human, then we don't have salvation. And when he came as a human, he really had to be a human. He didn't just have to appear to have flesh. If, if flesh is bad, then he couldn't have to go on the cross to be the satisfactory um, Sacrifice for us, and so flesh can't be bad in and of itself because Jesus was flesh. And if flesh is bad, then the cross was insufficient, and we're still in our sins. So it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. This, this Platonic thought, this Gnosticism, is, is wretchedly evil because it, it shortchanges the real value of the cross. And so Paul's fighting against that and saying, um, Jesus really was human. And we really are human, just our our, our human nature is depraved. And one day our human nature will be fully restored like Adam, long time ago before the fall. And so we are literally going to be made like Christ. Augustine of Hippo, um, a theologian from the third century, he opines about the experience that we will all uh, have as we live in this body. He says, we are burdened with this corruptible body. But knowing that the cause of this burdensome is not the nature and substance of the body, but instead it's corruption. Um, The bodies aren't supposed to be like this pre-fall, but they are now because of Adam. And it's because of corruption. We do not desire to be deprived of the body, but to instead be clothed with this immortality. He understood Platonic thought was wrong. We don't want to just shed our body and be a soul. We want to have our body renewed. We want it to be to receive its immortality, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54 that I read. If Adam had not sinned, he would not have had to be divested of this body, but would have been clothed upon, super invested, with immortality and corruption, that his mortal body might have been absorbed by life, that is, that he might have passed from his natural body to his spiritual body. But instead, that didn't happen. So elsewhere in Scripture, Paul says this glorious truth about the fact that we will... One day await this glorified body. He says it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20. He, said, he says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and in heaven from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. He'll change from a tent to a building, to use the metaphor of Second Corinthians. Which means the next life is perfect because we're finally made to be like Christ. So you groan, you know, I will one day when I'm in heaven, not sin. I can't wait for that. I'm so tired of sinning, right? So tired of it. I hate it. I want it to stop. The next life is perfect. That's why we groan. We're promised actually no sin. And thirdly, um, the reason why we groan is the next body is ultimately God's purpose. Verse 5, verse 5. You can see, he who has prepared for us this very thing, that very thing is the literal. It does say thing there, uh, but the meaning in the context is purpose, the word purpose. So he who has prepared for us for this very purpose, this glorified body, is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So he, he has given us this very thing or this purpose. The truth is that Paul is getting here is that from eternity past, it has always been the purpose of God for believers to obtain a glorified body. From eternity past, plan A, never going to have to use any other plans, believers are going to get a glorified body. Uh, Garland says it this way, those who are in Christ will have their... Dec- I love this, It's so true. When I read this, I was like, that's exactly how I feel. Those who are in Christ will have their decrepit, decaying outer frames, replaced with an eternal glory beyond all amount. Sovereignly chose those who are in Christ from eternity past. He's. Decreed from all eternity, redeemed us in Christ, created us with his own hand to have glorified body based on his elective decree. And he said, you are going to have this glorified body forever. So it's ultimately God's purpose. So we groan because he has eternally decreed it from eternity past that his children would have this. As Romans 8, 29 and 30 says it exactly this way. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that... He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he called. This is uh, regeneration. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So from eternity past, our glorification has always been in view. So the third reason we groan is because God has purposed it that you would be glorified. And to prove to us that his purpose will happen. He says, I'm going to make sure that you know now that that promise of the glorified body is going to happen. And here's how I'm going to make sure you know now. Verse 5, and he says, He has given us the Spirit as the guarantee. That's how you can know right now you're going to get the glorified body. I'm putting my Holy Spirit in you right now. This, we've been over this, but this is the word Erebon. This is the earnest, this is like the earnest money. This is God saying, here's the down payment or first installment guaranteeing that you're going to have a glorified body. One commentator says, the indwelling Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that believers are his possession and that he will redeem them to the praise of his glory. For that reason, it is ludicrous to believe that Christians can lose their salvation. Nothing can interrupt the plan of God set in motion from eternity past, which is election, and has pledged himself to carry us all the way through to future eternity, glorification. To argue otherwise is to assume that God is incapable of achieving, achieving his own purposes and thus diminishing his own glory. So if there's a text that gives you assurance of salvation, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, certainly is a place to go whenever you're feeling doubtful. And so here's the application for, of number one. Application is we groan. Since the next body is perfect, we strive forward even more groaning in this one to reach out to people as ministers of reconciliation. We, we strive forward in being uh, obedient to the ministry of reconciliation because you have a promised glorified body. Another is we, 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 in this next life, because it's perfect, we work in this life, groaning in this life to proclaim the gospel so that they will actually be with us in the next life. We groan as the the third uh, application is, ultimately because it's God's purpose. And so we groan even more now to honor God and this life and body because we are told to hold true to what we've already attained, Philippians 3.16. So that's number one. That's the first exhortation is groan. And I've tried to show you at least three reasons why we groan. The second thing that we can do, the second exhortation from Paul for living is not only do we groan, But the second exhortation is we also have courage. As proclaimers of Christ, you groan, but also as proclaimers of Christ, we are massively courageous. We are courageous. You can see Paul is actually going to say this two places, just like he does in verses 2 and 4. He's going to do it here in verses 6 and 8. Look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. Verse 8. Yes, we are always of good courage. Almost the exact same construct there. Or maybe it is. Um, so, the exact same thing there we are of good courage, so the second exhortation for us is, as proclaimers of Christ, we have courage, we have courage this is confident, um, courageous, and bold. This is used a few other times in the scriptures, this word just a few other times, uh, like so in second Corinthians chapter seven verse sixteen. Uh, it's actually translated for us confident. You can see it in 16. It says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So we are courageously confident. That's another way to say it. It's also translated in chapter 10.1 of 2 Corinthians. I myself, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Um, I am who I am when I face you, but bold towards you. That's that same word right here that we're seeing translated um, translated as as courageous, This thorao. So we're confident and we're bold. You can also see it in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. I had to mark it because I didn't want to have to flip. Here we go. Hebrews 13, 6 says it this way. So we can confidently, well, I'll read five. Um, keep your life free from love and money and be content with what you have for the The Lord's my help you're out. What can mortar man do to me? So this word here that we're being exhorted to do, this courageous, it means confident, bold, courageous. And we should note here that this courage that's being um, exhorted by, by Paul, thus by Jesus, thus by God, um, this confidence that we're supposed to have is not temporal. It's not supposed to be fluctuating. It's instead supposed to be a constant state of mind. We're supposed to be continually confident or courageous. We face death with phareo, Death comes our way as as proclaiming Christ. We are confident. We are courageous. We face preaching the gospel to people with thoreo. We face all things for Christ with this confident boldness, knowing that the Lord is going to save us. And so how uh, do we have this courage that is necessary? Because if I tell you, you need to be courageous here. The reason why that you can be courageous as a proclaimer, the reason why you need to, as a proclaimer of the gospel, make sure that you're going forward with courage is because we get this glorified body and you're like, okay, uh, that signed me up. I want to do that. How do I do that? What is it that's going to help me be courageous? Because most of the time, uh, if I'm honest, Fud, I'm back here and I'm just running through the scenario with my head. I know that person needs to hear the gospel and I'm super nervous and I'm going to say it wrong and they're going to think I'm weird and they're going to think I'm one of those crazy people in the airport and I like, I get nervous and so I don't want to say that. And so most of the time, Fud. I just feel super not confident or like super worried that I'm going to say it wrong. I just don't want to be thought of as a weirdo. Most of the time, if I'm honest, if I'm judging myself on a scale of one to ten on confidence or courageous or bold for Christ, I'm like a two. Most of the time. So how do I do that? All right. Here's how. Two ways. They're right in the text. They're right in the text. Now, these are things that the Lord has supplied to us that we have to tap into. These are things that we should do that the Lord has given to us to have confidence. They're right there in the text. The first one is uh, you, how do we have this courage? The indwelling Holy Spirit, which we just talked about in 5b. The Arab the, the bond given to you that you know you'll have the glorified body is literally the power in which you can be courageous. We have this, this Holy Spirit given to us, as Garland reminds us. How do Christians know that the promise of heavenly existence is real? How do we know that we're going to be there? Paul answers by experience by presently transforming them and uplifting them by the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this is the one massive piece of empirical evidence that shows that God's promises are real. It's a huge piece of evidence. We have the Holy Spirit literally in us. So how can you be courageous? You have the Holy Spirit in you. And you obey the command. This is it's in a command form of second uh, I'm sorry, of Ephesians 5:18 to be it's passive No doubt, but still, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every morning, Holy Spirit, there's no way that I can be courageous today. Please fill me today. Please fill me. Help me be courageous for you and live in such a way that honors Christ today. That's going to say something whenever I have an opportunity to preach the gospel. But you got to, I got to do that every day? I think so. Why not? Why would you not? Holy Spirit, fill me today. You got to do it. I can't do it. Fill me. But we have this amazing um, gift of of God, namely God himself, the Holy Spirit, inside of us. That's that's number one. That's how you have courage each day. And just, if you, I know this is subjective, but just based on your day-to-day experience, the days that you know you do that, and the days that you're mindful of the fact there's people around you that are lost, you probably say more about Jesus to them than you don't. Just think about it. It's anecdotal, sure. Think about it, though. The days that you say, Holy Spirit, fill me, you're more mindful of lost people and you probably talk about Jesus more than the days you don't say, Holy Spirit, fill me. That's God's design. That's just not happenstance, right? That's the first way. The second way, right in the text, verse 7. Walk by faith, not by sight. You can see it. For we walk by faith, not by sight. This means that we're not just living with some wishful fantasy. No. Instead, we have strong confidence grounded in Scripture. We are literally living out Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So if I say, walk by faith, not by sight, you can say, okay, I'm going to do that. I've got the Holy Spirit, and I'll walk by faith, and I'm going to be courageous. What does it mean to walk by faith? (laughs) What does that mean? I'm I'm really trusting right now, Fudd. This is what it means. This is what I think it practically means. All right. Paul actually tells us in 4.18. In 4.18, I think this is one of the ways that we can practically walk by faith. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. I think that's the first thing. So looking is um, fixing your spiritual eyes on Christ. This is what he means. So walking by faith is fixing our spiritual eyes on the things that are unseen and things that are eternal. This literally means to... Every day, and this is just like the most Sunday school answer, right? But it really is massively powerful to go to the Scriptures every day with this deep desire to see Jesus Christ as the hero of every page, that he has saved you in the gospel, and just be absolutely transformed as you read it, saying, whoa, look what he's done for me. I love this man so much. Wow. And that's how you walk by faith, not by sight, is by letting your eyes see the things that are eternal, Eternal, namely, Christ and what he's done. Being amazed utterly every day in the scriptures, that is mercy for you in the gospel. And seeing just how beautiful. Read If you can't do that, right, just do this. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just read how he interacts with people. And when you're done, go back to Matthew and read it again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, caring and loving and merciful. And how he stops and helps the lowly people. And just, be, just let yourself be like, what, a, what an amazing man. And God. But let yourself be amazed by that. That's walking by faith. That's seeing Christ as the hero of every page and be tra- being amazed by the gospel. Seeing what he's done for you and what he's done for others. And then just realize all that mercy he's showing to all of them in those uh, narrative of those, of those gospels is exactly what he's done for you and me when he died for us on the cross. Those people are us with different things going on. But they're all showing us that those people are us. So um, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now previously in the first charge of groaning, we talked about extensively what happens to us. The next life is best. It's, it's kind of all about us. But here we're gonna see something better about the glorified body. Namely that when we have the glorified body, what, the best part of having a glorified body is not that we stop sinning. The best part about having a glorified body is not that we finally got you know this body you don't like that's hairy, gone or whatever. That's not the best part, Right? The best part about the glorified body is you're in heaven with Jesus now, and you're with him. The best part about the glorified body is that you're with Jesus. So, as we're talking about here, he's wanting us to see, as it says in verse 6. So we're always of good courage. We know that we're at home in the body. We're away from the Lord. The opposite of that is when we are away from here When we're out of the tent, we're in the building, we're actually with the Lord. And that's the best part about the glorified body, is that you are finally with the Lord. As long as we're alive, we are in a sense away from Jesus. I know that, you know, I got Jesus with me right now. I know that. But we don't physically see him with our eyes right now. But whenever we are finally with him, this word home uh, is helping us see that repeated all throughout this. And it's talking about now you've been taken out of this and you're finally with your people. You're finally with your people. So when you talk about your people online, biblically, it's actually meaning you're at home with Jesus. That's your people. It's Jesus. Um, And so we love the people in our life, but ultimately we love Jesus more. And this means that we're now groaning and longing for our fallen human nature to be shed of us because we finally want to have a glorified body so that we can finally have full fellowship with Jesus. Full fellowship with Jesus, completely unencumbered by this tent that we're in. Once we're in heaven, we received our glorified body, we stopped sinning, and then we finally have full fellowship with Jesus our Lord. That's the greatest part about receiving the glorified body. And so Paul says, therefore, based on all that, remember this isn't just an excursus, based on all that, right now you have courage, you live confidently. You live boldly for Christ whenever you proclaim the gospel to people. Based on all that, on God's plan that one day we're going to be with him, we live courageously now, confidently and boldly for Jesus now, because one day we're going to be with him face to face, having lived courageously for him today. It only makes sense. It doesn't make any sense to live fearfully for him now when we're going to be face to face with him one day. It only makes sense to live courageously for him now Boldly proclaiming the gospel to people because we will be with him one day. That's the second exhortation. Third exhortation is this. Um, we proclaim Christ. As we proclaim Christ, we aim to please Jesus. So we groan. We also, um, as we groan, we also have courage. And the third thing is we aim to please Jesus. We aim to please Jesus. This, this word aim uh, means to zealously strive, eagerly desire, very strongly to have a big ambition, a big endeavor. Um, but this word is uh, philotimiumi and it starts with love. So this word aim literally on the front part of it has the word love uh, in the etymology of the word. So it's uh, showing affection as you have this aim. It's, zealously and striving and earnestly desiring, having this big ambition, but it's wrapped around the idea because of love. So when it says in verse 9, so whether we're at home, we make it our aim to please him. This means our deep down, filled with love, desire, ambition. That's what I want to do. I deeply, deeply love Jesus. And so my big ambition is to please him. That's what he's saying here. We make it our deep, loving, affectionate ambition to always uh, be personally valued, to have Jesus personally valued and honored in my life. So, uh, to state verse three, or number three, like as biblically as possible, it's we make it our loving, affectionate ambition to be acceptable and pleasing to Jesus. That's what I want. I want, it's my loving and affectionate ambition to to be as acceptable and as pleasing to Jesus. I just want him to be so pleased with the way that I'm living. Now, this can, found, this, this can sound um, super law-based, like Jesus is finally going to be pleased with me once I'm acting one way, and you don't need to get the gospel backwards, right? Jesus is totally pleased with you in the gospel, and therefore, based on that, we live out um, we live out uh, living for him. It's, don't get the gospel backwards here. It's not you're going to finally do that, and Jesus is finally going to be happy with you. But based on the fact that he has completely justified me, my deep, long affection is to please him. I want to live a life of worship for him. There's this old uh, passion song. I'm not going to sing it, but it's old school passion. Some of y'all know about old school passion. Most of you don't. But there's this thing called one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. No, I'm not gonna do it. So she goes into the chorus, and then have the echoes. Anyway, that's that's what we're talking about here. So, um, what he's wanting us to see is, based on the fact that we will have glorified bodies one day, it is my loving, deep ambition right now, every day, to know and follow hard after Christ. I want to live a life that honors Him in every way. So, what are the key aspects of this loving ambition or this aim? What are the key aspects? of this loving ambition. He gives us, they're right there in the text, he gives us at least three. So if you look at verse nine, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Him. That him is the first key. Our aim is to be on Jesus alone. Not Jesus and, but Jesus alone. You're gonna put up A. Our aim is to be on Jesus alone, to please him Um. No other aim will ultimately please you. Any other aim will always leave you wanting. I don't know if you've watched or not, but recently I just watched The Last Dance, ten-part series on the life of Jordan, where um, done by ESPN, where the greatest basketball player ever, Michael Jordan, um, they document for him uh, basically the two three-peats that he had, the, the one three-peat and the second three-peat, and they're interviewing him, and after it's all over, after everything's been achieved, he's sitting there in his house, and you can see the ocean in the background in this massive, unbelievable, palatial house, Oceanside House, the greatest basketball player ever. Everybody knows that, that. there's I mean, there's some people that think that it's somebody else, but you know they don't know what they're talking about. But everybody basically in all the world knows Jordan's the best player ever. He has sinks in Six NBA final trophies. That's that's not the most as as any player, but everybody still agrees. You're the best. We all know that you're the best. Um, Tons and tons of most valuable players, tons and tons of accolades. And he's sitting there in his house in his 60s now probably or whatever he is. And they're interviewing and he says this. What really, really bothers me after that sixth trophy is I know that if we had just had another year with that same team, we could have won seven. That's what he says. I know that we could have had seven, which, of course, has been interpreted positively to say that's why Jordan's the greatest. Because he has this insatiable desire to win, and he will win at all costs, which he'll do anything to win, which is why he's the best ever. But, which, of course, is true, that's why he is the best basketball player ever. But what shows us, and it illustrates for us perfectly, the human heart will never, ever be content with anything unless its aim is Jesus. There's not going to be a point to where you say, well, I've got Jesus, but I just wish there was just one other thing I could possibly probably have. That's what he's going on in his heart. Jordan is showing us, I I could have had seven. The human heart always wants something else once it's had it, unless it's Jesus. And once it has Jesus, you're like, "I, I don't need anything else. Just more Jesus. Just give me more him. I don't need anything else. I am totally satisfied here. And that's what we're saying. Our aim is to be on Jesus alone because you're actually never going to be satisfied any other way. Don't settle for lesser aims. Lesser aims that this world offers are always just gutters eventually. Instead, make Jesus your only aim. Number two, uh, our aim is not only to just be on Jesus alone, it's to be long-term. And what does that mean, Fudd? This is what it means. Look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away... Home or away. So we're talking about whether I'm on earth or whether I'm finally in heaven. That's that's a long time. What I mean here is that our, our loving ambition is not to fizzle out. Once we become a Christian, it's not like, well, I'm really super pumped about Jesus for this month. Or this five years. Or these 64 years, but I'm going to be 85. Or this 50 years, but I'm going to be 90. Or this one month. It's to be long term. At faith. At justification, it's until glorification. Our aim is to be long term. However long you're here, that's how long your aim, your loving ambition is supposed to be. Paul writes whether we're at home or away. So based on verses 6 through 8, this means the entire time we're in our body, our physical body, Jesus is our long term aim. Never supposed to end. Ever. Tristan, my four year old, he's learning to count. And so recently he came up to me and said, Dad, I can count to 200. Listen. Now, I don't know if you've ever listened to a four-year-old count all the way to 200. But it's it's not fast, right? It's not not fast. Dad, listen, of course. I have to do that. And so, Dad, listen to me count to 200. uh, And so, he starts counting to 200. And he he goes and goes. And it happens for a while. And the point is that once he gets to 200, he stops. Because he knows there's more numbers. He just knows he doesn't go further. My wife. My wife. And he wanted to tell her that he loved her so much, but he can only count to 200. And he doesn't know what's past 200. And so he wanted to tell her that I love you, but 200 is his highest numbers that he goes to. And so to try to communicate to her that he loves her more than he can count to, he goes, Mom, I love you to the end of the numbers. It's the cutest thing you ever heard, right? Um, but here's the point, right? Tristan, what he's telling us is exactly what we're trying to get here. This is precisely that Paul's getting at with our aim our loving ambition is to be to the end of the numbers. Whatever it is, as far as it can go, and I don't know what it is, I, my loving ambition for Jesus is to the end of the numbers. It's forever. It's forever. Long term, for the rest of our lives, and in heaven, is what we mean here. So our aim is Jesus, and our aim is forever. And number three comes from verse 10. Receive what is due what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So here he's telling us that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So this means our aim must also maintain the purest of motives. It reminds us, the judgment seat of Christ is reminding us that all of us one day will appear before Christ and there will be a penetrating uncovering of the depths of our heart by the Lord one day. Those who are in Christ do not receive what they deserve. Instead, we all get grace. Those who are not in Christ Philippians 2, 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, is one day every knee will bow, whether they're Christians or not. We who are Christians will bow saying, you're the Lord. Those who are not, they'll still bow realizing he's the Lord. Um, But this word appear here, when it says, for we all must appear, this doesn't simply just mean like vanish, appear. You know, it's not one of those like, here I am. It doesn't mean appear, that one day we're just going to appear, so it's, it's deeper. The word appear is deeper than just proximity. Like, here I am in this space. It has a condition of our heart also. This word appear means uh, there's, there's a condition of your heart. It's not talking about where you are. It's actually talking about what's going on in you. You will appear before Jesus, and your heart's going to be laid bare. It's not just like one day you'll be in front of him. It's more than just proximity. Philip Hughes writes, "...appear or to be made manifest does not just mean appear, or, but it means also to be laid bare, to be stripped out of every facade of respectability and openly revealed in the full and true reality of one's character." So one day we must all appear, which means our loving ambition must also maintain the purest of motives because one day we will be stripped bare before the Lord. As we go to the final judgment seat. So we want our aim to be absolutely central. That's why I said it's on Christ and to the end of the numbers. Because one day it will be laid bare. The purest of motives. So it's imperative that our aim is always to please Jesus in everything we do. So here's the good news. And he's already told us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Among many other places. Which is, for God said, let light shine out of darkness. as actually shone into our hearts who are in Christ. And the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ in the face of Jesus has been given to us. That's the good news. When we trust Christ, God proclaims over our dark heart, let light shine out of darkness. And now we are justified, declared righteous. The greatest news ever is that we now have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And that one day, in our glorified body, we will literally... See the face of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And he tells us then that we must, therefore, have these things going on in our life. Um, we must all. Well, you see in verse, verse 7, for we must all appear. What he's saying is everybody, not as a collective, but everybody individually will appear before the Lord. It's not big collections of people. Everybody will individually Give an account before the Lord. Everyone must be, as Garland says, everyone that's today mindful of their mortality must also be mindful of their morality. It means that if we are sinners here and we want to live forever, the only hope is Christ. Everyone that is mindful of their mortality must therefore be mindful of their morality. So if we were going to pick just one passage from First Corinthians chapter 6, Verse 9, following. Or do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or the idolaters or the adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or the greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And And such were some of you. All of us, all of us were those people before Christ. And then the second biggest but in the Bible happens. First one is Ephesians 2, 4. The second one is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. But you were washed. But you were washed. You are not that anymore. You've been washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Praise the Lord. But you were washed, is put there. We're not in that anymore. And now, the great reminder has been given to us all. And it's been told to us. If you're not in Christ, be washed you're in Christ glory in the fact that you've been washed justified being sanctified and one day you will be glorified if you haven't trusted in Christ trust in him today if you are a believer glory in that that this is what's true of you and so today to conclude here's what you can do right now as you long for your glorified body number one you can go ahead and put them up Groan, long really long number two be courageous You've got no reason to not be courageous. By the power of the Holy Spirit, walk by faith. And number three, please Jesus. Make it your loving, affectionate ambition to be acceptable and please Jesus with every avenue of your life. I'll conclude with just one statement. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul was talking about our our glorified body. And he finishes 1 Corinthians 15. It's up on the screen. Therefore, my beloved brothers, here's what we do right now. Based on all that fact that we're going to receive a glorified body, here's what you do. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, the work you do right now, is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. You are so kind to us. Thank you for giving this to us. We pray, Lord, now as we turn and remember your sacrifice in the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you would use it to strengthen us and nourish us spiritually. We we are so grateful that you have given us your word and reminded us today that we will one day receive a glorified body. And that actually matters today as we live out our lives for you. We love you, Lord. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.